the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into hour two, we have a special in-studio guest, and I struggle in thinking about the best way to describe him. And, and I think I would say this. In, um, in, uh, in, in the Jewish culture, there's a Talmudic concept of the 36 people who anonymously keep the world together. They don't know each other, and no one knows who they are. But I think I found one of them, and I think I do know one of them, and it's the man sitting across from me. Without him, this community would not be what it is. He is Jeff Taylor. He wears a lot of hats in this community. And I brought him in to talk about the issue that we're going to be discussing more and more, which is the issue of homelessness. And not only the issue of homelessness, but actually the word homeless, because it can mean several different things, and I think it's deployed wrongly in some of the cases I talk about. But Jeff Taylor, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the studio. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Seth, and thank you for having me. You betcha. Set it up a little bit with your own background and how you came to be an expert on this issue, if you will. Well, I think, Seth, that um, nobody is in grade school or in high school and they go to the, uh, like, repeat drug offender booth at career day, you know, in high school. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I was uh, coming from a good family here in Arizona. Um, Our families knew each other a bit. Yes, they do. And I was the last of six children and went to uh, good grade school, had good schooling, had um, a lot of interests in sports, uh, was a um, – I would say I would like to characterize myself as a good kid. And that's a lot of the people that I work with today is they're good people. And went to Central High School. And as I said, I had an interest in sports and played football. And uh, as I was in high school, I got a little bit of size. I was kind of a small kid in grade school. And all of a sudden, I shot up to six foot four and I could run fast and was recruited by uh, many of the major universities to play what we would call big time NCAA football. And at that time, University of Arizona was one of our top schools in the NCAA. ASU, my senior year in high school, was number two in the nation, and U of A was number nine in the nation. So Arizona was pretty much a powerhouse. I went to University of Arizona, and uh, in my second year there, I was injured. And I'd never been injured before. And I was given narcotic pain medication, which we hear a lot about today. Back then, we didn't know a lot about that, the dangers of narcotic pain medication. That was the first mind-altering substance I'd ever done. The, uh, in high school, I didn't smoke marijuana. I didn't use any, any other you know, recreational drugs. Um, I didn't drink in high school except for maybe one bad experience with Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. <laughs> Who among us? <laughs> <laughs> enough for me. And I didn't get addicted to the pain medication at the time, but boy, did it make an impact. When that narcotic hit my bloodstream, uh, you got to understand that now I'm on crutches. I'm on a big university. How am I going to get around? I'm falling behind in school. I was a pre-med major at the time, and that's a major you can't really fall behind in. 
in school. So I had, you know, worries about this. Am I going to keep my scholarship? Am I going to um, really, how am I going to get through this? And then I take a pill and all of a sudden it's all going to be okay. Now, nothing in my life changed except that narcotic hit my bloodstream and I call it a false sense of well-being. So it kind of parked in my brain. So um, recovered from the injury, didn't play football again. It was career-ending, and got out of University of Arizona in 1980 and embarked on a, a very successful uh, high-stress job. I was a Wall Street securities trader. I say Wall Street. I was here located in Arizona with a Wall Street firm. My office uh, was in Scottsdale, beautiful office, and I had some very good mentors and training and was able to really um, beat the market. Most traders lose money. Uh, back then, about 90% of traders lose money. And being competitive, I wanted to be one of the 10%. So that combined with that competitive nature, combined with some very good people around me, a uh, marvelous firm, um, had successes over the next nine years. Kind of a type A personality. I think in the nine years that I was employed and trading securities, I took one vacation in the nine years. So very much kind of entrenched in this business and very focused. And then I got really lucky in October of 1987. And I'm sure you'll remember what happened in October of 1987. It was the biggest down day in uh, the stock market history bigger than uh, any day in 1929. In one day, actually in a little over two hours, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 22%, which was a massive loss of wealth in this country. And I just happened to be 100% short the market, wanting to you know, make money as the market fell. Now, I was looking for maybe a, you know, a 50 or 75-point drop back in those days, which was a pretty big drop. And in, one, in that one day, it dropped 509 points. And that was just luck, you know. Now, in that day, I ended up um, probably making more money for my clients and myself than I did in that one day than I did in the prior eight years of trading. It was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So I hung out for a couple more years. Um, I knew that the markets had be uh, very volatile, and they were kind of switching from what I was successful at was picking up the emotion of the stock market, a human emotion. And they started switching over the big institutions into another trading model, which is computer program trading. You know, and they have all these different computer programs that, you know, will uh, make decisions and kind of took away the emotion of the market. So my skills were being diminished by this new way of really predicting future market strategies. So I got out of the business at the absolute peak of my career. I looked good. As I said on the outside, I looked like a success. Um, I had no debt, ended up uh, you know, building a house down in Mexico, had the fastest production car that was made at the time. What are you, about 29 years old? Yep, 29. And this is the power of addiction. What occurred in those nine years was a very well-hidden and very well-financed addiction to cocaine, which – was a very enabling business back then. I don't know if you've seen The Wolf of Wall Street. Now, I wasn't that bad, but almost. <laughs> you recognized it. Let's put it that way. Yes. Okay. And I didn't watch that movie for a long time sure. because it was just uh, it was a little bit too much, uh, you know, too close to home for me. Um, 
But one thing that, that I – as I was spiraling down with this well-hidden addiction is that I was full of guilt and shame. Now, nobody could see that. They could witness it as, as it's like, Guy, have you seen Jeff lately? And it's like, yeah, he didn't look so good. Um, I became more and more isolated, uh, started selling off assets and ended up running through everything I ever earned You know, in my profession. Any material item was turned into cash. Addiction will take everything. Uh, it doesn't matter how much money you make. I didn't have serious money at, at, at all. Um, but people that do have serious money lose it all. So the power of addiction is uh, at the age of 29, I'm looking good and, and you know this success story. And by the time I'm 33, 34 years old, I'm living on the streets of Phoenix, not going to anybody for help because how can you go to somebody for help when you were the successful person? And once again, here comes the shame. And addiction was very much stigmatized back then that if you had an addiction, you were a bad person. So I just spiraled down and disappeared. Uh, my family didn't know where I was. Um, I was, uh, first of all, living with uh, people that were lower in, in the economic life than I was because that made me feel better. You know, I'm going to hang out with people that are worse off than I am because it would make me feel better. Then I would be worse off than them. Then I'd find even a lower part of our society that I would hang out with. And then I knew I'd really kind of hit as low as I could go because all the homeless people wanted to hang out with me because mm-hmm. we're not as bad as that guy. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much lower I could have gone. And then I started being arrested for homeless crimes, I call them. Uh, Vagrancy and that sort of thing. Yeah. Vagrancy uh, in the city of Tempe at the time, you could be arrested for sitting on the sidewalk along Mill Avenue. Um, But they are mainly charges that are called catch and release. Mm -hmm. So you're arrested, you're booked into Maricopa County Jail, you would see an initial appearance judge, and then you'd be released on your own recognizance with no bail. So I was in and out of Sheriff Joe's jail in those days, I think four times, but I had six different charges. And when we come back, Seth, I'll let you know how that really kind of turned the corner for me. Good. And then we'll pick up from there on what we're seeing now with so many people who were in that condition as well as you are. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Jeff Taylor. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. In studio guest Jeff Taylor uh, talking about uh, the homeless situation, and even if that's the right word for it, telling his story. This is a man who had a very successful career in college, college athletics, got himself into stock trading, was driving uh, one of the most expensive cars, owned a house in Mexico, and ended up living under a tree on the streets of Phoenix. Now, I know you will usually say, sure, Seth, but it was a really nice tree, like, so nice, I don't even know if it's there anymore. Is it in a museum? I'm not sure. Anyway, you end up living under a tree. You find your friends in the lowest of places. They find you. What next? One thing I learned is that even though I was being arrested for breaking the law, which I was, is that I was getting out of jail with the same drug problem that I was arrested with. So the incarceration was not enough. Uh, it was a consequence. But we'll talk about, you know, later on on some of our solutions to homelessness. But there was no help. I'm a big proponent of uh, having a consequence because you're breaking the law, but then assessing people thoroughly and finding out who they are, what their needs are, how far did they go in school, how long have you been using drugs if that's the case, 
Uh, do you have a mental illness? What medications are you on? And finding out individually who people are and then aligning them with a release program into a, a behavioral health model that will help that person with their core issue, which is either mental illness on the homeless front, mental illness or drug addiction or some combination of both. And I think, Seth, if, if I want to get one point across to you today is that we need to call chronic homelessness, and we have to define homelessness. We're not talking about uh, the elderly homeless population, which is a big concern because we have the elderly that are on fixed incomes. Our rents in Arizona have surpassed any other state in the union, and they're getting priced out of the market. And we're not talking about the guy that lost his job two months ago and can't pay mortgage or rent. We're not talking about that guy not either. Not that guy either, right. nor the person that may have had a health issue. Right. And became homeless, and maybe his family also became homeless. We're talking about homeless encampments that we are seeing more broad throughout the state of Arizona along canal banks. It used to be isolated to some pockets around uh, downtown area, which has now exploded. It's become a high crime area, and now it's spreading to our city parks and uh, falling on really the responsibilities of our police officers along canal banks and really encroaching in neighborhoods. And I need to call chronic homelessness something else. Let's call it what it really is. Chronic homelessness is untreated mental illness or drug addiction or some combination of both. Yeah, some people call uh, in, in California. Some of the people I've listened to, Adam Carolla or 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 Michael Schellenberger or even Dr. Drew Pinsky, they'll talk about them as even as even just open air drug markets. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we're confusing we're confusing compassion mm-hmm. for people with enabling people, and that's a very dangerous road to go down. Uh, things can accelerate. We're already seeing that. I believe that you and I have seen some of our neighborhoods that never had homelessness or homeless encampments, and now they have homeless encampments in several areas of our communities. And what we're doing by this, we're being what we think is compassionate, where it's just the opposite, is that we are prolonging human suffering. We're letting them sit there in there and, and stew there and allow these uh, abuses of themselves from others and to others take place while we're allowing the mental health issues to go unaddressed, while we're allowing the uh, drug addiction to fuel itself. And we think it's compassion to not do anything and let them do that. I tell people if they want to get a sense of what we're talking about, go to Ninth Avenue and Jefferson. And uh, you will see something that looks very much like a bombed-out city in war, in a war zone. And, Seth, we are the United States of America. I am very proud of our country. I am very proud to vote today. Uh, you don't know how important your civil rights are until you've lost them. Like I forgot I that. You lost your right to vote for a while, didn't did. you? Yeah. From the last election, I still have on my mirror getting ready in the morning in the bathroom the sticker that says I voted today. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to replace it when I vote again here on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud to vote. And I am an informed voter. Uh, I think the best democracy is an informed voter. And so I take voting very seriously. But back to I think what the problem is, and that is, is that when we enable individuals, mental illness advances, drug addiction advances – and usually ends very badly. And sometimes that is put on the taxpayers by behaviors that are caused by mental illness, criminal behaviors, 
uh, and drug addiction, what we call drug-motivated crime. An example of a drug-motivated crime would be uh, breaking into a car and taking a wallet. Um, at some of our county parks, people know they go hiking, and they know they're going to be gone for a while, and they'll target these parking lots and break into the car, take the wallet in order to supply money for their addiction. That's a drug-motivated crime. Uh, we have people that are under the influence that if they still have a car, usually that's the last thing that you lose on your downward spiral is your car. That's your transportation, and people are you – know, And their last house often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they've usually lost the house, and that's usually their house then is their car. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So the downward spiral is quick and becoming quicker and quicker. And one of the major motivating factors for our homeless increase in homelessness now is the potency and the availability and the cost of what is called the fentanyl pill. Now, that equivalent, which is an opiate, that equivalent was OxyContin, and we've heard all about OxyContin and pharmaceuticals and how that got way out of hand, but that's how it started. And that was a very expensive pill to buy on the street. It was a dollar a milligram, so if you had a 60-milligram OxyContin pill, that's a $60 pill. That's a lot of drug-motivated crime to buy that $60 pill, and usually you're buying three or four of them a day. Yeah, that's a high that lasts maybe a couple, three, four hours, something like that. you got to do it again. Right. So that's a two. And you get used to it, so you got to do more of it, right? Exactly. Yeah, right. Okay. And your resistance can build up ad infinitum. Right. It's, it's a horrible you know, path to be on. Oxycontin is, as I said, an opiate, and it also robs the individual of their ability to care. That's why you see encampments where people are not bathing. They're not even drinking water. We lose a lot of people on the streets of Phoenix from dehydration. That's why they don't shower and trash all around is that they have been robbed of their ability to care. And it's just like, well, we'll look at them. So what we need is a program that was offered to me that people cared for me until I learned to care for myself. But that was effective because I suffered consequences in the criminal justice system. And that's that's kind of as we head to break, Jeff, where I want to go with you next is, is if we can talk about those consequences and maybe this problem of terminology just a little bit more, because I do think when we use the phrase I learned this from other people. But when we use the phrase homeless, we think the home is the solution. The home is not the solution, not to this population we're not, talking about. There are a lot of other solutions. You're going to tell us what they are. When we come back, let me put in a word for one of our sponsors, Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. I take it every day. It's a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables. You just take it once a day, and you are boosting your immunity, your health, and your energy. 100% natural, pure, potent plant power. Best product I've ever taken. It's kept me well for the last three or so years. I used to get sick about four or five times a year. Haven't since I started taking Balance of Nature. And you can too. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Jeff Taylor. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I'm Seth. My guest is Jeff Taylor. We're talking about uh, the homeless plus situation here in uh, Phoenix and in the nation, really. Going to the break, maybe this sets up the discussion for the solution part of it. But going to the break, we were just saying, Jeff, that the phrase homeless kind of implies that if you're homeless, the solution is a home. We're talking about a a population that doesn't want a home. We're talking about a population, at least at this stage in their life, doesn't care about being 
in a home or not in a home. They care about another thing, mostly their next fix. Take it from there. So it was a very, you know, it's kind of a new science, too, in what we're dealing with right now. So there was a big push for the housing first model. Now, the housing first model works for some of the population. Remember, we're talking about the chronically homeless here, not the other populations that are out there that are concerning, too, but for our discussion today. So let's just kind of those most in need, as we put it, right? Yes. Highest need. Highest need. So let's take someone with an untreated drug problem and put them into an apartment and furnish that apartment and give that person clothing and then try to do some wraparound services for that person. It's not enough security. It's not enough uh, really – you've got to surround a person with structure. So they're really living on their own. With maybe, you know, a group or two that they're going to in the services depending, you know, on the program that you're in. But by and large, for this population, that has a, that's a failed and very expensive model. So what does work is, is the homeless encampments are extremely dangerous areas to go. You've mentioned, you know, the 9th Avenue, 11th Avenue area, what is what we've referred to as the zone. And that's... I don't recommend anybody go there if the sun's down. I don't recommend anybody really go through there um, at any time of the day because it's turned into a mecca of crime and violence. And I've run into uh, and disagreed with many of the homeless advocates that say, oh, you're just going to criminalize homelessness. And that is not my intent at all. I am criminalizing the behavior, the criminal behavior that is occurring in these encampments. So we're not criminalizing homelessness or vagrancy, as you mentioned earlier, Um, criminal trespassing, trespassing, those misdemeanor-type crimes. But there is sexual assault on women going on in here. There is aggravated assault on individuals. From within. It's within this community against this community. I mean, when people think we're being kind by leaving them alone, understand we are turning a blind eye to the crimes, brutal crimes they are committing against each other. Exactly. And it is a very violent population under the underpasses. Uh, It's always been kind of in the river's bottoms down in South Phoenix also. So I'm criminalizing the criminal felonious behavior that is occurring there. Now let's play that tape forward. So you suffer a consequence. You enforce the law. And for this model to work, we need to have everybody on board in criminal justice from the police department to the prosecutors to the judges. Because the police will then spend a lot of time booking someone into into the jail. But if they see the person out on the street in the next day or so, they're not going to spend their time doing that. And that's what has been occurring is that we're doing this catch and it's release. It's a turnstile. Yeah, catch and release. Same thing that happened to me. Yeah. And nothing was being addressed for my addiction. So we have an excellent model here in the state of Arizona, one of the best in the nation, in my opinion, and that's in Marico- in uh, Yavapai County. And it is the sheriff in Mata- Yavapai County who's in charge of the county jail, um, as any sheriff is. And he is a long-term uh, county sheriff up there, decades of service. And he was the jail commander in one of his positions, and now he's the elected sheriff, and his name is Dave Rhodes. And he saw the revolving door of people coming in and out of our jail system. And usually behaviors increase. In criminal behaviors increase, as addiction gets worse over time, people become more and more desperate. And at some point, most become very violent 
and they're a danger to all of us. So what he instituted up there is called the Reach Out Program. And every individual that's come into the jail is given a thorough behavioral health assessment, finding out again, how far did you go in school? How long have you been using drugs? Are you on any psychotropic medications? It's a model where we're individualizing people's needs and then matching their needs as they exit the 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 jail system. So it, let me let me take this quick break and we'll come back. We have a longer segment when we come back, Jeff. But if I'm hearing you right as we head into break, the first step in the solution actually does require law enforcement. Absolutely. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Jeff Taylor. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Jeff Taylor is our in-studio guest. What we were talking about with regard to uh, this chronic homelessness problem, uh, Jeff, right before the break, uh, just if you want to pick it up from there, was the issue of consequence and um, and uh, rehabilitation. So yes. you can't get to the second without the first. I think I said in, as we headed to break, it does start with law enforcement. The answer to this problem has to start with law enforcement. People who don't want to start there will never get a handle on this. Do you want Correct. to take it from there? Correct. And that's and that's really what I call the criminal justice intervention that saved my life and many, many others. And, and I really want to make a, a point very clear that there are many, many thousands of people like myself in the community that are just as successful or more successful than I am because they were given what they needed. But it started with law enforcement. We all started there. So I was then accelerating my addiction, which accelerates your um, – desperation and which accelerate which accelerates your your criminal behavior. So I went from the misdemeanor realm up into the felony realm and doing drug motivated crime. Now morally I'm doing things that are completely against the person that God designed me to be and I was so full of guilt and shame over that added on to the guilt and shame of becoming an addict and so I needed someone to help me and to treat me like the human being that I was, even though I really wasn't acting like much of one. But when you're treated like a human being, then you start acting like one. So I was now uh, incarcerated. I've been in four different county jails in the state of Arizona, and now I'm in um, Coconino County Jail, which is in Flagstaff. Addicts tend to do things called geographicals that are like, oh, Phoenix is the problem, and then I would go Well, a to- geographic, they used to call it. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. exactly. So – and. As my counselor, when I finally you know, got into the door of drug treatment, one of the best programs that, that I believe exists, which is the Salvation Army Rehabilitation Center, which is a free program and it's a six-month residential program, is that they outlined some things for me. And, and one of them was is that we need to rewire the way that you think, how you react to the world. And that takes time. Uh, so back to the consequence. So I now have been in this jail for six months. That's a consequence. You know, jail's not real fun. But you know what? I was breaking the law. And I was knowingly breaking the law. I was creating victims out there. I am your typical nonviolent drug offender. I didn't do anything violent, but I was taking things that were not mine and selling them for drugs. And once again, building upon my guilt and shame, which means I want to medicate that. And then your addiction increases and you're just in this terrible. The definition of a vicious cycle. Exactly. Yeah. So I had a very wise judge that looked at my criminal history and he said, I think this kid's got a drug problem. I never had a DUI. 
I never had a drug possession charge. All I had was theft charges. But he said, this kid has never been in trouble in his life. And all of a sudden, within a year, it's like, boom, 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 boom. He has all these touches with the criminal justice system and thefts. And so unbeknownst to me, he made a deal with the prosecutor, which really you have to have the prosecutor on board, back to having everybody on, aligned here. So I was arrested. They're aligned with the prosecutor who is aligned with the judge. And the prosecutor took a look at my, my history, kind of did an assessment when assessments weren't really being done and said, we think that he would benefit from, you know, rather than going to prison and going to – and I was sentenced to, in a court of law, to the Salvation Army Drug Treatment Program. Saved my life. I remember walking in the door there with the clothes on my back and that's all I had, worldly possessions, literally the clothes on my back. And that the person said doing the assessment there, uh, you're drug tested when you walk in the door. They want to know exactly what's on board and if there is any drugs on board and – and again, I was given this very thorough assessment there, and they said one thing that will stick in my mind forever, and they said, how do you feel about yourself? And I'm like, yeah, I, I hate myself. I was given every gift God could give an individual, and I messed it all up. I can't blame anybody for this except for myself. And the intake coordinator smiles and said, that's okay, Jeff, because we're here to love you until you learn to love yourself. And that turned a corner for me. And I was pretty upset with the judge for sentencing me to a six-month program. I remember challenging him and saying, whatever happened to the 28-day program? Because an addict wants the easiest, softest way. Of course. And, and it's hard to imagine six months, too, when you're in the grip of an addiction. You, you, you meet someone in these 12-step meetings who, on your first day, and they tell you they have six years. You can't fathom it. You can't fathom, fathom six fathom months. 30 days. Right. You can't fathom 30 days. Right. My first you know, 12-step meeting, I saw a guy go up and get a 30-day recovery chip, and I was like, how do you yeah. do that? How is this possible? Yeah. No. But that's the power of the group right. that you're around as you see people that are successful in front of you. So I stayed in that program for six months, and- you know, it's just been a miracle after miracle after miracle since then. Uh, but one thing I do want to point out is really give credit to our governor, Doug Ducey. Uh, he heard a presentation that I gave long ago when he was uh, really in his infancy. And he was very interested in criminal justice and safety and drug addiction and getting people what they needed. And the line that really grounded him in this and in being uh, interested was I talked about reducing recidivism right. when coming out of jail or a prison because recidivism equals crime. And if we can reduce recidivism, then we can create and prevent less victims in the future and we can also make a safer community for us all. This, this community is much safer that I receive drug treatment. I'm no longer taking things that aren't mine. Um, I'm a good father to my child. And because I got what I needed is that this cycle of addiction is stopping with me. My son has not known his father to be under the influence of drugs or alcohol in his 22-year lifespan. And I would like to think I'm a good example for him. He just graduated uh, Northern Arizona University with a degree in criminology, and he just put in his application last week to be a Phoenix police officer. Fantastic. And I think he's getting into it for the right reasons. Yeah. So that's the miracle. That is that's a miracle. That's the miracle is that my son has never known his dad. I've been at all of his sporting events. I've been at all of his parent-teacher conferences. I'm an involved parent and a clean and sober parent. Jeff, the tough part about – well, there's several obviously tough parts about that. So I'll start the sentence over. But one of the elephants in the room is trying to help 
these people who are most in need, the people with the heart, the, the most severe needs, against their will. That really is the challenge here. And I wonder if you might just take a minute to talk about where your will was on this. I guess once you're in handcuffs, it's broken, but a lot of people don't want to put the handcuffs on them. And that's what has occurred in states like California and where billions of dollars have been put towards this. Uh, San Francisco spends $1 billion a year, $1 billion a year in San Francisco to make the problem worse. Just got back from San Francisco and Oakland in this beautiful city that was my favorite city growing up has now been destroyed by the homeless population. So what they've done there, which I believe is is got them into this, is back to this enabling. Mm-hmm. They have rights. You can live the way you wish to live. Prolonging human suffering, but they've taken away the consequence. Mm-hmm. So in, for example, here in Arizona, we have many empty beds in treatment programs because we need to bring that, that consequence back. The consequence will lead them to that bed. I have offered our homeless population a bed in a treatment facility. Without the consequence, they will not go. Yeah, that's right. Um, we'll come back with um, – oh, okay, yeah. I, I, my phones are lit up here, Jeff, with people thanking you, including some people you probably know. Sam Stone at the city council's on. I, we, we don't have time to take the calls. We'll just acknowledge and thank them um, and come back with some concluding thoughts. Yeah, and I look forward to talking to Sam. He's, yeah. a, he's a great guy. He is a great guy. We'll be right back. Leapson show. I could do uh, an interview with Jeff Taylor for hours and hours and hours. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have that kind of time, but I uh, want to thank you, Jeff. Sam Stone called in. He was listening to the interview. Sam uh, is someone both of us know. He has his own radio show here every Saturday afternoon, Broken Potholes. He's also a candidate for city council. Sam, welcome to the show. We have a few minutes if you want to say a word to Jeff in the community. Seth, thank you so much. And Jeff, it's great to hear your voice. And folks out there listening, you need to listen to this man because everything he has said in this interview is spot on. It's what needs to happen. Sam, I remember when we first met, we were talking about this uh, very issue in the sober living homes uh, in yep. in our communities. And so Sam and I go back to really putting together a very effective model in the city of Phoenix to regulate sober living homes and get them uh, really bring accountability to what was – some of the homes were very nefarious and and taking advantage of a very vulnerable population. And, and, and like very few things in government, it actually worked. Well, that's what I was just going to say. You know, I think we're turning a corner here. Jeff and I were talking on the break. We saw you were on hold there, Sam. You had called in. Jeff and I were talking on the break. A few of us have kind of gotten together recently over this. We're going to bring you into this uh, to this uh, this little ad hoc committee we've created because it feels like we're about – we just about got the group right to actually do something here, and we'd love to have your help with that, Sam. The, the time is right, and, and tough love is the right kind of love at this time. Thank you, Sam. Uh, breaking – but uh, breaking battle, what, what, what breaking battle, breaking battlegrounds. I, I used to have a different name, so I was getting caught up on that. <laughs> but breaking battlegrounds is Sam's uh, Sam Stone's show heard every Saturday morning. Sam, Godspeed to you and good luck, of course, also on your run for city council. We need you there. Jeff, last minute. What would you like the community to know? I'd like the community to know that when uh, back to my statement about we treat people like a human being and they act like it. Well, the homeless. People are frustrated with the homeless populations, and the homeless are not being treated very well. 
I would just encourage our you know community members that as people are standing on a street corner, because now that we have this cheap fentanyl pill that was $60 to, to bring that to where it is today, that $60 pill is now $2, yeah. flooding our borders, and it is poisoning our youth, and it is prolonging the suffering of human beings on the streets of Phoenix, and then they live in such a way that the community – uh, really is is responding negatively, and of course, you know that people would. So the homeless are not being treated real, very well. Do not give money to the homeless, but treat them like a human being. Maybe give them socks or sunscreen or a hat. Ask them their name. Just start that process of treating people like a human being, so they will start acting like a human being. And that's exactly what happened in my life. And I'm blessed to be here today. Uh, we're, the community is blessed to have you here, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, folks want to learn more about this, of course, stay in touch with us. But check out a video, uh, a documentary you can get freely online called Beyond Homeless, Finding Hope. Beyond Homeless, Finding Hope, put out by the Independent Institute. It's a really good introduction to the problem. Stay tuned. I'm going to do my monologue much on this issue when we come right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 